Hello, and welcome to the fifth episode of our podcast series, AGG Talks, Antitrust and White Collar Criminal Roundup, in which we cover the legal facts surrounding the recent cases, trends, and hot topics related to antitrust and white collar crime with some of the foremost legal analysts in the country. My name is Jeff Jakobowicz. I am a trial attorney at Arnell Golden Gregory. I'm also an adjunct law professor at American University, and I chair the firm's antitrust group. I have recently appeared a number of times on CNN uh, regarding white-collar criminal issues, mainly related to the Trump indictments, the four different Trump indictments. I am joined today by Cynthia Alksney, who you all know because we've recorded before, a career federal prosecutor, star MSNBC legal analyst, and an expert on criminal law, grand jury, and police investigations and confrontational interviewing techniques. Cynthia has handled cases involving grand jury indictments, leading to dozens of cases. She has a deep understanding of the Department of Justice and state investigative policies and grand jury protocols, FBI practices and protocols. And she's here with me once again to talk about the latest updates in the pending criminal and civil litigation cases against former President Donald Trump and the Trump Organization. Cynthia and I will discuss the testimony of the Trump children, which occurred this week and last week, and Donald Trump and the New York Attorney General's civil fraud case against the Trump Organization. We'll discuss the recent gag orders imposed by Judge Chutkin and Judge Engeron in DC and New York, the tentative trial date in Florida, which in the Mar-a-Lago case, which appears to be very tentative, as Cynthia will tell you, and the the effect of the lawyer pleas in the Georgia Rico case and other litigation related to Donald Trump. Cynthia, let's get started. How has the testimony of the Trump children and Donald Trump impacted on the civil fraud case in New York? Well, we have to, of course, start with Trump because he's, you know, the central witness. I have never heard of a witness behaving the manner in which he behaved in the courtroom yesterday. And it was almost like he was pushing the judge to overreact to try to get a mistrial, and the judge did not. The prosecutors did get a couple of things out of him that will help their case. Having said that, their case was already in very good shape because, as you know, the judge had already ruled there was persistent fraud. It was really only a question of how intentional it was and what reliance there was on it. And Trump did make some concessions on the reliance issue. He said he did expect that the financial institutions on some level were relying on his statements. Even though he said he thought he would have gotten these loans anyway, he did make some concessions on that. The other important thing about Trump's testimony, because the judge is making evaluations on credibility. And credibility evaluations are really the purview of the lower court of the judge and are rarely overturned on appeal. And because of his combative behavior and um, unwillingness to answer the questions and the concessions that he made, it's pretty easy to see that this judge is going to find him to be not a credible witness. That's going to be hard to overturn on appeals. So in that way, he really hurt himself quite a bit yesterday. Let me ask you this. Uh, Do you think it's possible the combative actions by Donald Trump 
were really related to his base, uh, his political base, and not the legal case? Uh, and or is he trying to get himself locked up, for example, on the gag order, on, on his combative behavior in court, where he thinks if he's locked up for a day or two, that would help his political case? Well, that may be true. I'm not a political analyst, but from a legal point of view, he did not help himself with this behavior. So I find it hard to believe that any lawyer would suggest this was going to help his legal case. And it does seem that we are, you know, in the political realm based on his behavior, especially since his lawyer came out, who had a pretty good reputation before and said it was the best he's ever seen a witness testify in like 30 years, which is you know, not smart or factual or any legal basis for that. So I think we're talking about politics and I'll leave it to the political experts to say whether or not it'll help him, but it certainly did not help him legally. Sure. And this is a legal analysis that we're doing today. Right. And and I guess um, the other question is, well, let's step back for a second. We had Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump testify prior to their father. What do you think about their testimony and how it will influence the case? Well, I think they basically had the defense that I don't know what happens. Somebody else dealt with it. And of course, Don Jr. said that he really didn't know anything about it. It wasn't his responsibility. And then on cross-exam, he was handed paper after paper after paper where he did, as a fiduciary, sign uh, these statements. And that is devastating. Also, Eric Trump said he didn't really have anything to do with it. Here's the problem with that. That's basically saying, we're not saying that the statements were true. That's not a very good defense, right? That's kind of admitting that they're false, but it was somebody else's problem. Donald Trump took a different tact, and that is, they aren't false. I think they were true. That's not what the boys did. The boys said, on some level, admitted that they were not true. So, it sets up Ivanka in a very strange position. Is she going to say this 11,000 square foot apartment really was 30,000 square feet? I mean, Trump, you know, wanted to argue, well, I view it differently. I include the elevator shafts and the roof and, and the common areas. Uh, and the boys instead just pushed it away and said it was somebody else's responsibility. But it does put Ivanka in a pickle to decide, is she going to be like her brothers and just say, it's not my job? And then be cross-examined with every piece of paper that she signed as a fiduciary, particularly with the hotel in Washington, D.C., the old post office. Or is she going to be more like Donald Trump and say, no, these valuations are actually correct? Uh, we'll see what she does. But I think it's a difficult position to be in. To me, not a unified defense, which I find surprising. Like, why didn't the boys say, you know, push the, well, the accountants did it. And I agree with them for the following reasons. Like that's would have been a more unified defense, but that's not what they did. Right. So Eric, uh, Eric testified that he really had nothing to do with the appraisals. And then he was confronted with the emails, which showed that he was involved with the appraisals. I guess the issue with Ivanka is her civil case was dismissed based on a statute of limitations claim. And she tried every which way to get out of testifying next week or this week, excuse me, in the civil fraud case, and actually filed a motion with the court and filed a motion with the Court of Appeals saying that it was a school week and she has children and she has to watch her children. And that was immediately rejected by the courts in New York. And so the question is, will she be adverse to her father? Will she be adverse to her brothers 
in her testimony? And also, Cynthia, does she have a Fifth Amendment privilege, even though the statute has run in the civil case? Is there another charge she potentially faces out there? I think she does have Fifth Amendment privilege, just, just like I think her father and brothers did and chose not to exercise it. And my hunch would be, since they did not, that she will not, that she will go ahead and testify. You know, she would have testified today, but it's election day in New York. And so the court is dark, but um, we'll see what she does. I would guess that she tries to thread the needle, you know, in between what her dad said and what her brother said. And by also saying, I really don't have any idea. I mean, that's difficult for them to work because their signatures as fiduciaries are on a lot of these documents and the attorney general will present her with those documents. I think they're in big trouble in this case. And it's interesting, you know, with election day, practically she will have a chance today to review the transcript of her father's testimony, which lasted about four hours. So she could go into court knowing what he said. And that may be a critical fact for her in terms of her preparation. And, and what about whether Donald Trump will abide by these gag orders imposed by uh, Judge Engeron in New York and Judge Chutkin in D.C.? Well, the gag order in D.C. is on an administrative stay. The D.C. Court of Appeals is obviously in a hurry to make a decision on that case because they've done expedited briefing. Everything is due in that case, and there's oral argument on November 20th, you know, is, is light speed for an appeal. I think on some level, it does control Trump a little teeny bit, because what we know is when there was a gag order in the Chutkin case in D.C., he kind of laid off witnesses. And when she lifted the gag order temporarily, he went after Meadows and Barr in a huge way. Then she reinstated the order. So on some level, he is trying to get away with what he can do with the orders. At the same time, he knows, you know, there isn't a judge who wants to put him in the back. You know, anybody else who said, you know, if you come after me, I'm coming after you, or who insinuated that a witness like Mark Milley should be executed, or went after Bill Barr and called him all those names, who's a witness in the case. Anybody else would be probably in handcuffs in the back um, eating cheese sandwiches, and he is not. He is a special person in the entire justice system. And for all the complaints about you know, he's being persecuted by the justice system. You can make a pretty good argument that he's actually been insulated by the justice system and allowed to continue in a way that nobody else would be allowed to continue. Well, his attacks on Judge Engeron's law clerk, I mean, any judge would have locked up a defendant when that happened because any judge goes out of their way to protect their law clerks. And, and right. that continued. He wasn't the only person who attacked the law clerk and put her picture on social media and he's hasn't been incarcerated. Right. So the judge has given him every chance to really correct it or not, you know, not lock him up. Right. Well, and Judge Chutkin has done something interesting. So she's trying to get this case to trial and it's a pretty normal trial date, right? She wants to make sure it looks like as an observer, she wants to make sure all rights are protected and then he's treated as equally as as much as any other defendant who comes into D.C. courthouse would be treated. So there's this March 4th trial date. But interestingly, she said, if you keep doing this, I'm going to move the trial date up. You can only move the trial date so much, and then you're affecting somebody's ability to prepare for trial. And she doesn't want to do that. So this week, what she did is she set jury selection in February, I think on the 9th. 
that's essentially moving up the trial date, right? Because ordinarily, if you get a trial date, if I say to you, we're going to trial on May 1, that means we're going to come pick a jury on May 1. Not in this case. What she's done is gone ahead and set the jury selection for February for trial to begin in March, essentially moving up the trial date. Because I think she knows it's very difficult to put a person who is campaigning for president and is the leading contender for the Republican nomination and a former president and, you know, a serious contender for president. You know, if you just read the paper, he's ahead in many of these swing states. To put that person in the back doesn't really make a lot of sense. So it does make sense to move this trial date up and get this thing to trial as quickly as possible. And it's interesting when you say put him in the back, it's not clear where you put him. If a judge wants to incarcerate him, you have the Secret Service to deal with, and it's not clear where that occurs. I think that could be figured out. I mean, the Marshal Service is a rather capable institution. They figure out where to put him in a federal court. So in any event, let's move on to Georgia. Since we last talked, there have been pleas in the Georgia Rico case, including two top lawyers for the former president. How do you think that will impact on the case for the former president? Well, there are five lawyers charged, right? And two pled pretty in quick succession with limited requirements to participate in the process and no requirement that they participate with Jack Smith. And then we had the third plea, which is Jenna Ellis. She was Giuliani's right-hand person. In fact, traveled with him in the fall of 2020 and went to many of these states claiming all kinds of outrageous things that turned out not to be true, that she now admits are not true. And she has pled guilty and agreed not only to cooperate in the Georgia case, but also in the D.C. case. She really didn't have a choice because there had been a bar complaint against her in Colorado where she has a license to practice law. And in the course of that bar complaint, she basically admitted that much of what she said on television about the election improprieties was false and that it was a lie that she said much of it on Fox News. So she really didn't have anywhere to go, especially when you add the other pleas ahead of her. I think what it does is it creates more of a domino effect, right? So you have one other lawyer who should be, my guess would plea soon. He is the guy, Trump is not paying his fees. And he's the guy who was actually in the room when they did some of the fake elector work, a Georgia lawyer, he should plea. But her real pressure is on Giuliani because she and Giuliani were joined at the hip in 2020. And she was in many of the meetings with Giuliani and Trump. So she puts a lot of pressure on the defense. And we'll see how much cooperation she gives to Jack Smith. But my guess is that she's being interviewed now. And, and that's an interesting point about paying the fees. Jenna Ellis was not having her fees paid. Giuliani was not having his fees paid. And then and Trump held a fundraiser for him. But I don't know how much money he raised. And Giuliani has indicated he's in financial trouble. And he put his apartment up for sale in, in Manhattan. So we don't know if that will influence the decisions whether to plead guilty. And certainly Ellis and Giuliani were in the room and knew exactly what was happening around January 6th, after January 6th, and prior to January 6th. Right. So I guess we don't have a lot of time left, but let me just shift gears. Uh, Michael Cohn testified in the New York case. What, what did you think about his testimony? Michael Cohn is such an interesting strategy decision, right? I think that's kind of fun. 
this case is in front of a judge. So Michael Cohen has, which is very different, let's say that if you had to make a decision about whether or not you were going to put Michael Cohen on the stand in front of a jury, because Michael Cohen not only has felony convictions, your average felony, but he has felony convictions for lying. And for a regular jury, that would be pretty insurmountable in terms of deciding his credibility. But for a judge with a lot of experience, I don't think it was insurmountable. And so that you could put him on because he does kind of provide a basic framework for the manner in which the AG's office wants to say that Trump controlled the situation. I mean, they basically, their theory of the case is that Trump had a bunch of these underlings who did whatever he wanted, who were not strong enough to stand up to him. And he could just sort of hint at what he wanted them to do, and then they would do it. That's that's their theory of the case, right? And that's exactly what Michael Cohen says. So he does provide a framework and the judge can make a credibility determination. He can say, you know, I find on this particular point for the following reasons that Michael Cohen is credible on that framework. It's something you might not have done if you had had a jury. I certainly wouldn't have done it if I'd had a jury, but I think he's pretty interesting as a witness in a judge trial. And it's interesting about his testimony is Donald Trump and his lawyers then attack Cohen's testimony saying it wasn't credible and that's why we should win. But they have already lost. The judge ruled for partial summary judgment. And now the trial is really only about damages and what the judge does to Trump's businesses in New York and other places, including Mar-a-Lago. Isn't that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And it's not just a preliminary win. I mean, a big win. He says there's been persistent fraud and it's really only a question of the damages. That's pretty shocking in a summary judgment situation. And that's exactly what he ruled. And I think that's why Kais, Trump's lawyer and Trump have made a determination that they can do whatever they want in the courtroom. Their situation, they can look at it in a non-legal way because they've lost the case legally. And let me ask you a last question, Cynthia, and this has come up in a few states now, and it's a critical issue, which is, can Donald Trump be excluded from future office based on whether he was an insurrectionist or not? You know, leading constitutional scholars have made the argument that because of the 14th Amendment, he cannot. I'm not a leading constitutional scholar, but I think it's fair to say it is a decision that will be made by the Supreme Court. And as a Supreme Court watcher, I think this is almost a political answer, right? I don't want to make a political answer, but I think at at this level, on this particular issue, only a political answer comes. And so everybody will have to make their own determination. I personally do not think the Supreme Court is going to keep a leading candidate of an important political party off the ballot. I think they will leave it to the voters. But there is a strong constitutional argument that they should. I do not think they will. And there's a split of opinion, I think, among leading scholars as well. The split of opinion and the split of court decisions, that will likely end up in the Supreme Court, as you indicated. Right. Cynthia, I want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, Listeners, we hope you found this discussion to be informative. If you have any questions or would like to submit your feedback or topics for future podcasts, please feel free to reach out to me, Jeff Jakubovich. You can find my contact information at agg.com and future podcasts episodes will be distributed through the AGG website and social media pages. Thank you again, Cynthia, for joining us. Thank you.